October 3rd, 2021. First things first. Week 3. We need to talk. At some of the darkest hours in our own lives, sometimes all we can do is wait. At some of the darkest hours of history, all the people have been able to do is wait. And in some of those dark moments, heroes have arisen who've made a little safe space for people to wait in, who've opened up their hearts and their lives and even their homes to say, this is a safe space for you to wait this out. In uh, the mid-19th century, was, as runaway slaves were trying to run from slavery in the South to freedom in the North, uh, there were people who opened up their homes and lives as part of the Underground Railroad and welcomed people into their home and said, it's safe to wait here. You can wait here until it's such a point that the next place opens up or until such a point that it's safe to travel on, it's safe to wait here. At the height of the Holocaust, there were people who opened up their homes to Jewish refugees who were trying to escape out to freedom. We've got a picture here of one of the homes in the Netherlands where they created a little false wall and a safe hiding spot where people could hide. It's now been turned into a museum. They opened up that section of the wall to show how uh, Jews could climb under that bottom shelf and, and hide in that little hiding spot if there was a risk of a raid or something going on there, and they could hide out in that spot as a safe spot. This, this particular home, from, in 1943 and 1944, had, at any given time, five or six Jewish refugees hiding in this house in the Netherlands. And over a year and a half period, they had 800 Jewish refugees come through this home and find their way to freedom, find their way to the other side, and get through there safely. In fact, in 1944, a neighbor tipped off the, the authorities of what was happening there, and they raided it. The, the family that was living there was arrested for aiding and abetting Jewish refugees, but the refugees made it to safety. They were not found hiding in that hiding space and, and getting through to the other side in safety. But it's hard to wait. It's hard to be in a waiting room. It's hard to be in a waiting season, uh, no matter how many heroes come along and help make the waiting easier. We're in our third week of our series, First Things First, where we're looking at times when people, uh, when God called people to enter into a new chapter or into a new season, but first he had something for them to do before they entered the new chapter. So we saw this with Joshua. God called Joshua and the Israelites to enter into the promised land, but first he told Joshua to be strong and courageous, and he had them cross the Jordan River on dry ground as a first things, things, a first, things first moment for them. And God calls us to be courageous. God calls us to be strong and to be fearless as we face an uncertain future for ourselves. And we saw Jacob where Jacob was on his way looking for a bride and looking to start a family. And, but first things first, God met him in a desolate place in the middle of nowhere and showed him uh, what God was doing and, and promised him this place, helped him to see this place the way that God saw him, showed him a thin place where the separation between heaven and earth, earth is paper thin. And he Likewise for us, calls us to see our places, pray, calls us to pray, Jesus, as Jesus taught us to pray, to pray that God's will be done on earth, here, as it is in heaven. First things first. And today we're going to look at a little sliver of time in the book of Acts. A little sliver of time after the resurrection of Jesus, where the disciples found themselves waiting in a space similar to the one we just put up on the screen. Waiting in an awkward, it's a, it's a small slice of time, but awkward and full of angst and stress and hope as well. And we're going to find this in Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, or beginning at verse 12, rather, where it says, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, or otherwise known as Jude, not Judas Iscariot. And they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
and with his brothers. They've just come through probably the most tumultuous 45 days in history, where 45 days earlier, Jesus is with them. They're moving about freely. He's teaching. They're sharing meals together. Everything is normal. And then almost overnight, Judas, one of the 12, betrays Jesus. He's arrested. He's executed in a politically motivated execution, executed publicly for all to see. His body is left. They bury his body. All hope is lost. And then he rises again on the third day. And he spends the next 40 days with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God and, and evidencing that this is not an illusion. He is with them. He's, he's alive again. He's conquered death. And after this 40-day period where Jesus is with them again, he ascends up to heaven. But he says, before he goes, wait. Wait. Don't leave Jerusalem don't do anything. I'm going to spend, send the Spirit to come. I'm going to send another helper to be with you. But first, wait. And so they go to Jerusalem. They go to this upper room. And they just wait for 10 days. It's kind of miraculous that they waited the whole time. Because you can imagine there'd be some people in that group who'd, you know, after two or three days would say, you know, I got them on my lawn. I'll be back. Let me know if anything changes here. Or, you know, I just got to check on things back at the shop. Or, you know, there's... there's Things I gotta sort my sock drawer. If anything changes here, I'll come back and help out. But but in the meantime, you, I think you guys got this covered. I think you got this covered. But they all wait and they stay there. And maybe some of you are in a waiting season too. You're in a season where you're not quite where you want to be. You're waiting to, for the graduation to happen. You're waiting for the big event to happen. You're in a season of waiting for what's coming next, what you hope is coming next. And waiting is the pits. And the, the disciples, the 11 plus, there's about 120 believers gathered here in this moment. They know the, the uneasiness of waiting. Now, in this particular time, they're, they're joining together, they're praying together, they're sharing meals together, and they're committed, they committed themselves to Jesus' teaching. But just then, something unexpected happens in the next verse, verse 15. Watch this. It says, In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120 and he said, brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. And things seem to be going well. They've got one job, wait. Don't do anything, wait. And it seems to be going okay. And then Peter stands up and says, I think I know what everybody needs. Everybody needs a speech from Peter. And if you know Peter at all, this, he, Peter has this knack. He has, his spiritual gift is doing the awkward thing at the awkward time and putting people in an awkward spot and speaking up when he just should stay silent. And so as we're flipping through the, the pages of Scripture and get to the scene, it's natural to think, oh, Peter, just all you had to do was keep your mouth shut and just sit there and wait. Why did you feel like you needed to open your mouth and give a speech right here? But actually, there's something beautiful happening here. And he seems to put his finger on an issue here that they need to address before they move into whatever God has next for them, before they enter this new season. And there are five things that he leads the 120 believers there through in, in these next few verses. And the first thing that he does is Peter addresses the elephant in the room. Peter addresses this awkward moment here when he says, we need to talk about him. They've been, we don't know how many days they're into this waiting time at this point, but they're sitting in this room, they're all together, and he's, it's almost as if he stands up and says, it's time that we talk about him. And you can almost imagine one of the other disciples saying, yes, I know Jesus, I can't believe what Jesus has done, I can't believe that he's alive, I can't believe that he's conquered death. He says, yeah, that's good, that's not what I'm talking about. We need to talk about Judas. 
we need to talk about what Judas did. And it's easy for us to, to look past Judas at this point because it's natural to think about Judas on Monday, Thursday, during Holy Week, the day when he betrayed Jesus. It's natural to think about Judas on Good Friday, the day when Christ is crucified because of that betrayal with a kiss by Judas. Even on Saturday when it's silent and we don't know yet that Jesus is going to conquer death, that'd be a natural time to think about Judas. But after Easter Sunday, after the resurrection, Judas who? Iscaria what? Who cares about this guy anymore? He's an afterthought now at this point. Who, who cares about Judas? It's natural to think, not to move past him and forget about him. But Peter recognizes we need to talk about Judas. We need to acknowledge the hurt here. We need to acknowledge what has happened to us as a group. And this is probably my favorite scene from Peter's life in all the Bible. If I asked you who your favorite disciple was, I can probably guess that as if we took a poll of this room, most of us would say Peter, and there's a good reason for that. We know more about Peter than all the other disciples put to combined. We know more about that one than the other 11 combined. So we tend to pick Peter as our favorite disciple, but this is my particular favorite Peter moment as he addresses the wound and addresses the elephant in the room that is the betrayal of Judas. And first things first, if you're in a waiting season or as you enter this new year, as we enter a new month, welcome to October, the most colorful month of the year. As we enter this month, maybe for you, there's an elephant in the room for you that you need to address. There is somebody who has betrayed you or hurt you or abandoned you and it's just sitting there unaddressed. And so we want to walk through these five steps of what Peter does with the, the 120 believers there gathered in the upper room. And we see what he does next in verse 17 when he says, he was one of our number and, he, and shared in this ministry. And the second thing Peter does here is Peter addresses the hurt. We often think about how Jesus must have, how that must have felt for Jesus to be betrayed by one of his very own, to have Judas come to him that night in the garden and walk up and kiss him on the cheek as a way of, betraying him. It's, a, it's an awful, dark, person. it's a personal betrayal. It's right up close and personal. And we think about how that must have felt for Jesus to be betrayed by one of his own after all that he's invested in Judas and all the time they've spent together. If anybody would know Jesus, it would be Judas. How could he do this? But it's almost as if Peter stands up in this awkward waiting time and says, I can't believe I didn't see it coming. How did none of us see it coming? I mean, I... I feel betrayed in my own body. I feel betrayed in my own spirit. When Jesus, you can almost hear Peter saying to the, the 12 and the, the 11 and the 120 believers there that, that day, saying, when Jesus told us that one of us was going to betray him, none of us thought it was Judas. I, I was seriously afraid it was going to be me. I thought it might have been Andrew. He's a little bit shady and slimy. But, but no, none of, nobody pointed a finger at Judas. We all, how... How did, could we be so blind to not see what was going on? How could we not see any of the symbols? Bartholomew, I know that you had just been sitting across the table with him earlier that day. Did he give any indication? No, there's no indication. And he, he addresses the hurt that they felt as a group, that, that he was one of their number. That number 12, when they refer, get referred to as the 12, is packed with symbolism as it's kind of a recreation of the 12 tribes of Israel and and there's even some evidence that in the first century, it took 12 witnesses to verify anything in a court of law. And so there's significance around that number 12. But now there is a Judas-sized scar on this group. And they are the 11. And Peter's acknowledging the hurt. He's addressing what's happening here. 
Uh, Ajith Fernando, an author and pastor and, and Christian leader in Sri Lanka, helped me to, to begin to see this passage in a different way. And he says that I've encountered so many people who are bitter about being betrayed by other Christians that it appears to me as if we're having an epidemic of such bitterness today. And it's almost as if Peter recognizes in this moment what Judas did. One of the greatest risks of it is that I don't trust you as much as I did before and that you won't trust me as much as we did before. And a little bit of erosion of our trust of one another could, could fall out as time goes on if we don't address this right. So it's not spiritual to deny the hurt. He doesn't downplay the hurt. They, they own it. They bring it out right out in the open. He was one of us. Third thing that Peter does here is that they don't downplay what Judas did. They hold this intention. There's, there's sometimes a, a temptation when somebody does something wrong and good things come out of it anyway to say, well, all's well that ends well or the ends justify the means. And there could be some people, there are some people actually, who think that maybe Judas was motivated by some good intent somehow, that he knew Jesus was powerful, he knew that Jesus was the king of kings, he knew that Jesus could do anything he wants to do, and so maybe that Judas was trying to prompt Jesus to just, would you just get out there already? Would you just get out there and show people how powerful you are? Would you just get out there and show people the, the Messiah instead of waiting all this time? And there are people who try to excuse this for Judas, but the Bible doesn't. The Bible always calls Judas a betrayer, always calls Judas it refers to Judas' bad intentions, his, his bad heart. And Peter doesn't gloss over it here. They're holding these things in tension where sometimes when something bad is done and good still happens anyway, we say, well, you know, it's okay. But Peter here is saying what Judas did was evil, what God did was holy, and Judas doesn't get any credit for what God did. It's still evil what he did, even though God could work through this in, in a powerful way. No glossing it over. There's no, no downplaying what Judas has done. And the fourth, he paints a God-sized picture. For them, uh, for them, painting a God-sized picture, he starts right off from the beginning. This had to happen to fulfill what was said in the prophets. This had to happen to fulfill what David wrote about in the Psalms. And he's, he's showing how this was part of the plan that God had in his, in his eternal plan to bring salvation to the world, that this was part of God's plan. And so he, they're able to recognize that God wasn't surprised by this. This is you know, almost echoes of Joseph in Genesis 50 when Joseph t- says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended this for good. They're able to hold this intention and say, There's, God had a plan for this. God is not surprised by what Judas did. But for us, part of having a God-sized picture of what's happening is that we know we are given one option of how to deal with our hurts. We know that we are given one way of dealing with our enemies and those who betray us, and that is to forgive them. And he writes, said, forgiveness does not mean I don't mind or it didn't matter. I did mind, and it did matter. Otherwise, there wouldn't be anything to forgive at all. And when we process our hurts, when we bring out the elephant in the room, when we process the hurt, when we don't downplay or sugarcoat what was done to us, a big part of that is then seeing, okay, God has given us one option. We are not encouraged or given the option of seething with anger or rage. We are not, we are not told that, hey, it's an, it's an option. If you just need to take a year or two and, and hold a grudge or nurse a grudge, that's never given to us as an option. Jesus says, unless you forgive your brother, your Father in heaven won't forgive you. And that's what makes... Forgiveness, a miracle every time. 
that it's, it's always undeserved. It's always a miracle when you watch somebody forgive somebody who hurts them. And the natural way of responding to our hurts, the natural way of responding when someone has wronged us, the natural way of responding when we have been betrayed is through revenge. It's through hitting back. It's through speaking back. The natural way that we respond typically when someone has wronged us is by hitting back or by celebrating when, they've, when they suffer. When things start to go wrong in their life, we celebrate a little bit. Like, yeah, look at them get it. They're finally getting what they deserve. That's the natural way we respond. We just naturally want them to get what they deserve. But Jesus tells us that the only way that the only offer we're given is to forgive as we have been forgiven, is to offer forgiveness. He calls us to forgive. He teaches us that unless we forgive others, our very own sins will not be forgiven. He teaches us to pray, Father, forgive our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And this turns out to be the path to peace. This turns out to be the path to freedom. This turns out to be the the way not only of freeing ourselves to a hope and a future, but of setting two people free. And it is always a miracle when when you forgive someone. And a lot of times it takes superhuman strength to do it. But it's always a miracle. And they close out this scene in verse 23 in kind of an interesting way where it says, So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's hearts. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go, to go where he belongs. And then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. And for them, the last thing they do is they move on, number five. They bring out the elephant in the room, they address the hurt, they don't downplay it, they paint a God-sized picture, they see their hurt through the lens of what God's plans are and what God can do through it and what their response has to be, and then they move on. And for them, moving on means... They, they know that they need to get back to being 12, not just 11. And so they identify through a number of criteria of somebody who's, gonna, who's eligible to, to join the 12, and they identify two, they cast lots, and Matthias is drawn. Now here's the, the, often the curiosity. So what becomes of Matthias? After all this buildup, after this whole process, this, this person emerges during this, this time of waiting and this time of anticipation for what God's going to do, whatever becomes of Matthias? I don't know. Actually, we never hear from him again after this moment. This is the last time we ever hear of Matthias. And some people have wondered, does that mean that this is a mistake? Did they pick the wrong guy? Uh, no, because you know who else we never hear about again after this passage? Judas. They dropped Judas's name. He's never mentioned again in the pages of the scriptures, which is sort of surprising. You might, we might expect that with somebody who betrays Christ, that, that his story would be woven in every time they talk about the suffering of Jesus, every time they talk about, about the resurrection, that somehow they find a way to bring up Judas's name. But they move on. They address Judas, they choose Matthias, and they move on. As if, as if they're saying in this moment, I'm not going to let Judas poison me. I'm not going to let Judas' betrayal uh, hang on to my shoulders and hang on to my life for the rest of my life. We've got to move on. We've got to turn the page. And this is the first chapter of the book of Acts. About a third of the book of Acts is just sermons, sermons and speeches. But the very first sermon in the book of Acts is not about Jesus. It's about Judas and the forgiveness that Jesus calls us to offer. So, what about you? What's the elephant in the room that 
you've been walking past, the hurt that has just been festering, the wound that has gotten infected and has become an inner infection of the soul, what is that hurt that you just can't let go of? First things first, it's time to address that. Before you can move into the next season, before you move into this new month, to not downplay the hurt, but to forgive. Not because it didn't hurt, oh, it hurt. Not because it wasn't wrong, oh, it was wrong. Not because you didn't mind, oh, you did mind. But because we've been forgiven such a great debt. That room I showed earlier uh, was actually the, belonged to Corey Tenboom. Corey Tenboom was a Christian who had lived through the Holocaust. Her family lived in the Netherlands, and they were devout Christians. And uh, I think we have a picture here of Corey Tenboom later in life when, when her home was recreated to be a museum depicting what had happened there. And uh, she was a little girl there in, in the Netherlands when the Nazis came in and took over. And her family uh, began to house Jewish refugees, to give them a safe space to wait it out, to get through to safety. And eventually they talked to an architect and they built this false wall in her bedroom. I believe it was in her bedroom or right near her bedroom. And uh, that architect helped them smuggle in one brick at a time to not draw attention to what they were doing. So one brick at a time, they brought in these bricks and built this false wall so that if there was a raid or if there was a a fear of police coming in, that, that the refugees could hide out in there. And like I said, 800 refugees came through their home in a year and a half time, finding their way to freedom. Until one day in 1944, when a neighbor tipped them off, and their house was raided, and though they didn't find the refugees, Corey Tenboom's whole family was uh, arrested and taken off. Her father died shortly thereafter. Uh, her sister, she and her sister were sent to Ravensbrook, a concentration camp for women, and uh, her sister died from typhus there in Ravensbrook. Not long after her sister died, uh, Corey Tenboom was released, dis- discharged, and she found out later on that it was a mistake. It was a clerical error, that she wasn't supposed to be released, but somehow she was in a paperwork mix-up. And not long after she was released, all the young women in Ravensbrook, her age, were killed, were put in the gas chambers and killed. It's a miracle that she survived. And in 1947, after the war, uh, because, she, because she was such a devout Christian, because of her strong faith in Christ, and because of the uh, heroism of their family, uh, she became a speaker and an author, and a lot of people are familiar with her story. But in 1947, she went back to Germany to preach the gospel to the folks there as they were rebuilding after the war. And she stood up in front of a group like this and just talked about the forgiveness that God offers. As she liked to say, God takes, when we, when we confess our sins, as 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And she liked to say that God takes our sin, throws it out into the depth of the ocean, and then God likes to put up a, a little sign that says, no fishing allowed. And she offered, just preached to the Germans that day in 1947, the offer of forgiveness, the, the wonder of forgiveness, how, it's, how you can be set free by having your sins forgiven. And then after the talk was over, she looked up and she saw him. She would know him anywhere. And it was one of the guards from Ravensbrook. And she froze. And he walked up and she thought, there's no way he, could, there's no way he can recognize me. It's, it's impossible. There's no way. He, I will never forget him but he can't possibly remember me. And he walked up to her and extended his hand and said, wonderful message, Fräulein. Indeed, God does send our sins into the depths of the ocean. And he stood there with his hand extended to her and she just froze with her hands at her side. 
And he began to talk. He said, you know, you, in your talk, you mentioned Ravensbrook. He said, I, I was a guard at Ravensbrook. He said, I, I did a lot of terrible things at Ravensbrook. And since then, though, I became a Christian and God has washed me clean. God has done a work in my life. I feel like a new person. And I know, I know that I know that God has forgiven my sins. I know that I've been washed clean. But he said, it would mean so much to hear that from your lips. And he stuck out his hand one more time and said, will you forgive me? And Corey Ten Boom froze. Her hand locked at her side. And she thought, how could I so glibly talk about forgiveness of sins when there's this monster standing in front of me, this person who's done such awful things that I've seen and witnessed and experienced firsthand. My sister died in Ravensbrook. How could I stand here and just walk in and talk nonchalantly about forgiveness as if, as if it's this easy thing and now this monster is standing in front of me asking me to for, for forgiveness as if this is just something I can pull out and give to him. But then she said, forgiveness is not extra credit. Forgiveness to forgive those who've wronged us is not bonus work for Christians. She said, it's a precondition to our own forgiveness. And she said, in that moment, with her hands locked at her sides, she said, oh God, I can't do it. But if I raise my hand, will you do the rest? And she raised her hand and shook his hand and said, I forgive you, brother, with my whole heart. And she said that that was a turning point in her own life not only the forgiveness that she offered to him, but the, forgive, the, the, the freedom that she gained. She said it was like everything just broke open and she felt new freedom and new release that she could never have felt before that. And listen, I'm, I, it's such a moving story. Every time I've heard that story, I'm just so moved by the power to forgive in a moment like that, of all places, after everything she had lost, after everything she had been through. It seems like superhuman forgiveness. But... It is always superhuman when you have something to forgive. It is never easy to forgive when you have something to forgive. It's always undeserved. And it always sets more than one person free. So today, first things first, before you move on from this place, let's name the elephant in the room. Mention that to God, that person, that hurt. Acknowledge the hurt. Don't downplay it. Help God to help you have... Ask God to help you see it in a bigger way. Forgive and move on. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, your, your word is good. How we love your statutes, but we, uh, we don't really like this one. Kind of wish you had left this one out. And some of us, uh, if we're honest with you, Lord, will confess that we have enjoyed nursing a grudge. We have savored the opportunity to, to fester and to pull out that memory of that wrong to us and, and replay it again. Some of us are haunted by it. There's no savoring. There's no gloating. There's no happiness in that. There is, it, it's... It's a scar on our soul. It's created an inner infection in our soul and we, we want freedom. So Father, forgive us of our sins 
as we forgive those who sinned against us. It's hard. We don't know if we have the strength to do it. But Lord, meet us as we go. Meet us as we take the step. And set us free. Help us to not only receive your forgiveness, but to offer it to to have the difficult conversations we need to have, to, to write the letter, to come to peace and experience freedom in you. I pray it in the matchless name of Christ our Lord. Amen.